<laughs> Today's focus is we've been looking at, at, at familiar verses from the Bible and some that may be committed to memory. And today's is two verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it's good to have repetition, so um, read this with me together. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I love mountains. We live in the Poconos. We live in the mountains. And to go to, to the highest peak is always special. Even if you're in some mountains, where's the biggest one? And those who are mountain climbers dream to, call, to, to climb Mount Everest, the highest peak on, on the entire planet. Something about mountains and a desire to go up there. In the Bible, there's multiple stories about men going up on the mountain to, to meet with God. And one of those stories takes place in the book of Exodus in the 34th chapter, specifically those verses right there. Um, and now Moses was the one who was on the mountain. And you may, might remember that story, might be familiar with how after, under Moses' leadership, of course, God's power in him to, to bring the people out of the bondage of slavery and then to, to safely cross the Red Sea and put the Egyptian army and all the ways of Egypt behind them when those waters just washed away that army behind them. Now it was time for God to, to bring them together as a people and to give them a way to live. And, and part of that was to give them a law to live by. And Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive that law. And, and, and he had been up there a long time. And after he was up there a very long time, the people began to get impatient and grumble. And maybe they thought he was dead. Maybe they thought he abandoned them. But anyway, a lot of them began to doubt about God and about Moses. So they thought, well, you know what? We're sitting out here in the middle of nowhere. Let's go back to Egypt. But we can't go back empty-handed. Let's make a God and tell them that this was the God who brought the plagues. This was the God that, that divided the sea, which was a big lie and a rejection of the God who loved them. But they made a golden calf. And just when Moses was coming down the mountain with the commandments that God gave him, he saw this. And, and Moses was angry, and God was angry with the people, and they suffered a, a consequence for that. Well, sometime after that, Moses went back up on the mountain because God had to give him another copy of the tablets he had in his arms. So God went to the Xerox machine. Here you go, Moses. Here's another copy. Well, it was a little more than that, but, but when he came down that second time and he had the, the new tablets of the Ten Commandments and other laws with him, there was something else. They saw him walking at a distance, and he was bright. He glowed. I'm, I'm, I mean, he was brighter than Pastor Paul's head in that spotlight here. It, it, was, it was really bright, and, and like they like couldn't even look at him. And he had to put a veil over his face because he just met with God. And, and somehow, the, physically, he was, he was reflecting, glowing the glory of God himself in his own body. And that lasted for a while, and he kept having to put a veil over himself until it eventually faded away. Several centuries later, that same mountain 
There's another man who went on Mount Sinai. And this time there wasn't a nation at the foot of the hill. In fact, there was no one but him. And the reason he went to this mountain was he was a man of God. In fact, he was called a prophet of God. And that prophet's name was Elijah. And you can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 19. And what happened in that part of the, of the story of Scripture is that Elijah was a prophet that warned the people that specifically the king and the queen, and really it was the queen who had the control at this time. Her name was Jezebel. And she had the people rejecting the one and true God, worshiping a God called Baal. And the whole nation was, was falling into this, this, this heresy, this, this awful rejection of, of, of their God. But Jezebel didn't care. So God, through Elijah, said there's going to be a drought and not one drop of rain is going to happen for years. And that's exactly what happened. And it lasted three and a half years. And at the end of the three and a half years, God said to, to Elijah, basically, well, here's what you're going to do. Go to, go to Jezebel and Ahab and say, Let's, you, you bring all your prophets and we're going, to have, we're going to have a contest to see who can light an altar without any matches or pyrotechnics. You're going to light that offer by prayer, and that's it. And so they, they took it on. It was just Elijah alone, and there was like 400 prophets of Baal, and they went first, and they built this big old altar with wood on it, and they prayed, and they danced, they hollered, and Elijah was mocking them for a while. You know, maybe your God's in the bathroom, and you know... I kid you not, there's a certain, it depends on how you, how you read the text and how you translate the words. It's almost what he's saying, okay? He's just messing with them. So, of course, nothing happened. So Elijah says, okay, it's our turn. Elijah must have had a flair for the dramatic, right? Wait, before I pray, get some water. Now, there was a drought going on, but they were very close to, to a body of water. They're, they're called the Dead Sea. And so they... They put water on it. He said, pour water on top of the wood. And they drench the thing. They're like, you know, it's just soaking wet wood. There's, you know, a, a trench around it with water. There's no way that's going to burn. And then he prayed. The people would see who the true God is. And it went. And the people realized their error of their ways. The prophets of Baal were done away with. Now here's the thing. Elijah, after three and a half plus years of having to run for his life because they, Jezebel and Ahab hated him. He's running for his life. Now he's back. And he thought, oh, it's over. Yes. But it wasn't. Jezebel, on hearing the news of what happened, put out a arrest warrant, in fact, a death warrant on Elijah. And Elijah got word that Jezebel was going to kill him, have him killed. And rather than trusting God in that moment, because he already decided, I'm going on vacation now. I'm, you know, <laughs> this is it. I'm going to relax for a while. He said, oh, no, not again. And he left and he wandered. And he ended up on this Mount Sinai after, after 40 days. And... And he said something that I'll bet every one of you has said to God at one point in your life or another. He got to this mountain. The same, it might have been the exact spot that Moses received the law. We don't know that for sure, but it was the same mountain. And God speaks to him. 
Now, God didn't say anything for 40 days to him. He's just wandering around. He's, he's depressed. He's, you know, just, whoa, poor pitiful me. So God speaks. Elijah, what are you doing here? And here's his answer. Lord, I have had enough. Ever been your prayer? Your thought? You've been in those places in your life, you're so down that you've just had enough. And if you can utter a prayer at all, that's what it's going to be. I've had enough, God. I can't take it anymore. So, God decides to bring a demonstration of his power to before Elijah. And he said, all right, you know, I'm going to come by in some form or another, but you'll recognize me when I do. And then come out of this cave he was in. So we all have to come out of the caves of depression, the caves of darkness. But the first thing that came by was a massive earthquake. It shook everything. But God wasn't in the earthquake. And next there was this furious wind. And it ripped the rocks apart like a tornado. God wasn't in the wind. And next there was a fire that destroyed everything that could burn. But God wasn't in the fire. But then there was a gentle whisper. A still, small voice. And that's what God was in. It wasn't all the noisy stuff. There was a lesson there too. But then God told Elijah, you're still a prophet, and you've got work to do. And he listed the work. And you're going to have a successor named Elisha, and you need to train him. That's going to take a while. And the last thing God said to him, oh, by the way, you are not alone. And that was one of Elijah's other complaints. There's no one left but me. Poor, pitiful me. No one else understands. And God said, no, there's 700 people in your nation who haven't bowed down or kissed the feet of Baal. And you need to get back and work with them. He did. One more mountain story. Wasn't the same mountain though. This is another mountain called Tabor. This is up um, Sinai, of course, was uh, down toward Egypt, near, 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 not far from the Red Sea. Uh, today, we're not, not exactly sure where it was, but it was somewhere in that region. But this mountain was clearly on the other end of the Dead Sea, way to the north. And um, this mountain was thought to be a holy place by. Um, the whole world at that time. Actually, this is a picture of that mountain, this one, okay? Mount Tabor. And um, whatever religion was going on in that region, they looked at that mountain and thought, our God lives there. No, our God lives there. Or maybe they agree, both gods live there. Or the gods live in that mountain. They, there's kind of a general agreement. And, and gods came and left, but they all lived up there somehow. It was a spiritual holy place in the minds of the people. Well, in... Mark chapter 9, we read how Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. And it was most likely this mountain because that's the region they were in. And so they're up on this mountain. And as they got there, there's two other people. And I love, I love picturing the reaction of, of Peter, James, and John. Okay? They're with Jesus. They know Jesus really well. He's performed miracles. And they love him. And they're with him. And they're... What, what, what's Jesus going to do today? There's no people up here. Oh, there's two people. I wonder who they are. Jesus comes up says, um, Peter, James, John, 
They'd like you to meet Moses and Elijah. <laughs> well, uh, hello. Moses, the guy who was gone like 2,000 years ago. <laughs> Elijah, maybe 1,000 years ago. Whatever it was, it was a long time. Okay? But they knew about them. Moses, the lawgiver. Remember that. The, the Moses, the guy of the law. Elijah, the, the greatest prophet. The law and the prophets. If you grew up in Jesus' time, you knew those two words. The law and the prophets. You lived by that. With the, what the law said. It came from Moses, what the prophet said, like Elijah, who was the greatest prophet in the eyes of the people. And they're there. And then Peter says, okay, here's what we're going to do. He thought of the best way that he could honor Jesus alongside Moses and Elijah. And we're going to make, make three tents, like a, like a, a fancy uh, shell of some kind that they could sit in, but it was a way, it was like a shrine. It, it was a way to say to them, you, you are godly. You are from God. You are of God. And we're going to honor you. And he was putting, now hear this, he was putting Jesus on the same level of Moses and Elijah. And Peter's thinking, yeah, that, I should do that. That's what he deserves. Well, at that moment, before he built his little tents, Jesus starts to get bright. Like Moses was many years before. But Moses didn't glow in this moment. Just Jesus did. And he got brighter and brighter, and the disciples are getting freaked out. And then something happened that happened when Jesus was baptized. This is like three years later. A voice came from heaven and said, This is my son. Do what he says. That message meant a lot of things. That message meant that, sorry, Peter. Jesus is not equal with Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Jesus is superior to both. Jesus himself said, I have not come to throw away or abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. And so that's what happened. In that moment, they, they began to understand it. I doubt they understood it right then, but in time, they would learn that, that Jesus Christ and what he would do then as he went to the cross and died and rose again, that indeed was the proof that he was more than the law, that he was more than the prophets. It also sent a message to the rest of the world who thought that mountain was holy. And Jesus is up there in this place where all their gods thought their God lived, and here's the Son of God, the only one that's shining, the only one that the voice from heaven says, this is my Son. So there are so many great messages about that story. It was such a keen moment in, in, in the gospel record. And, and, and Matthew and, and Luke also write about that same event. So, what's all that got to do with caterpillars? <laughs> My daughter, Hannah, would probably be able to describe this. In fact, I'm not quite sure would be able to describe this much better than I do. Than I can, but I'm going to try. Inside the DNA of a caterpillar is something that, that uh, scientists in this field have called imaginals. And so there's these cells that live in the caterpillar. While the caterpillar is just a caterpillar, those cells lie dormant. So however long the caterpillar is living, whatever number of days and weeks it is that he's just a caterpillar, 
those imaginal cells just are kind of hanging out. They don't, they don't do, have any function. When the caterpillar gets inside that cocoon, those imaginals come to life and they start attacking all the other cells. And the other cells in reaction to that are fighting back. But these imaginals sort of eat up all the cells of the existing caterpillar. And as they're doing this, they're creating something. They're like, like these cells are now beginning to, to develop a structure. And these imaginals are taking what was a caterpillar and transforming it into something bigger, something wonderful, something that didn't have to crawl anymore on a branch that could be set free and fly, and we call a butterfly. Imaginal. I love that word. Think about image. All of us have been born with the image of God. And yet that image, untouched by Christ, untouched by love, untouched by, by, by grace, just sits there and lies dormant. But someday when you, when you take faith in Jesus Christ, when you believe that he loves you, then that, it, it sets him to life in you and the things that you thought were life, the things that you thought were important, begin to die inside you. You die, as Paul writes about, you die to yourself. You take off your old self and put on the new self. And that's the kind of transformation that happens in our lives. Slowly but surely as we walk with the Lord, we are transformed like the caterpillar to a butterfly into the image of the one who loves us. The, the, the true image that, that he always wants you, wanted you to be and wants you to be. That's what the power of Christ is in us. His spirit works in us. Imagine his image. And when you take those two words and you think of it this way too, the first three letters of that word, flip it around. I am. That's, what, that's the name that, that, that God gave to Moses the first time Moses met with God in the mountain of the burning bush, right? Who is it that you're, I'm supposed to tell Pharaoh is that, that he's going to let all these slaves go to? What, what's the name of the God? I've got to give him something. And God says, Tell him, I am has sent you. And Jesus is the great I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. You are the branches. I am the resurrection and the life. The great I am. Who are you? I am a child of God transformed by His love, set free to walk with Him, to share, to, to, to take that love that He's captured my heart with and, and to show it to my family and to show it to my friends. And I'm never going to do it perfectly in this world, but I'm going to keep working at it. I'm going to keep transforming. I'm going to keep going. Because I don't want to hang out in the branch like a caterpillar. I want to live. I want to see this world. I want to... And, and, so many people are just trapped in either as a caterpillar or they just stay in the cocoon and are afraid to, 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 to break out. And Christ helps us to get beyond that. So the reason I made this connection today is because with the metamorphosis and the word that I shared with children, 
The, the word transformed in Romans 12.1, the word transfigured in that story of Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration, which appears in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. Same story just told by those three Gospels. That word is the same. It also appears in, in 2 Corinthians, which we'll read in a moment. That's the only time you find this word in the Greek in the entire New Testament. The New Testament was written originally in the Greek language. So the Greek word for transfigure slash transform is pronounced metamorpho-o. Now, where do you think we get the word for the butterfly that came from the, from the caterpillar? Metamorphosis. You know what that tells me? The transformation that God has in mind for you and I isn't just this little makeover. It isn't just, you know, God, I got this annoying thing. Can you help me with that? Then that will be good. You know, God, yeah, just, just touch this little part of my life. You know, don't worry about the rest. I just want to change this. No, no, no. He wants to wrap you up in his love, hide all the stuff, and then bust out the real you. He wants to, to take all the things that you thought were good and, and, and filled with life and, and, and teach you how you can let go. Teach you how, how it, you don't need that anymore. Teach you you don't need that pattern anymore. Teach you you don't need that attitude anymore. Teach you to, 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 to say and do and to be a person you never thought you could be. Teach you to be set free from all that holds you back, your doubts, your fears. And to be, go into the whole world that, that, that people see the change in you. The change as much as this change is from this side of the picture to the other. The change uh, uh, like Moses from just being a regular guy to glowing brightly and then Jesus even more so. That's the change. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, this is the other time you find this word transformed, metamorpho, metamorphosis, basically. I'm going to start at the seventh verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope... We are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. Now let me pause there. That was actually a practice that they would do. And maybe to this day, I don't know among Jews, but um, there, there was a practice of putting a veil when you would read the law. As, as, a, as an honor of, of Moses and, and, and the, the glory of, of the word, you know. And, and so what Paul's saying, it's so much bigger than all of that, okay? Um, continuing there, it has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. 
Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when anyone who turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Spirit, now the Lord is spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image, there's that word, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. So when you talk about Moses shining with glory, when you talk about Jesus shining with glory, it's not like, wasn't that great that that happened to them? Yay, God, thank you. Guess what? That's what he's calling you into. Now, you're not going to glow really brightly. When I lost my hair, I glowed a little bit more, but you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, this isn't the kind of glory Moses and Jesus had in terms of physically shining. What I'm saying is, the change that is happening and can continue to happen in you can be as bright as that light because that's what he's called you into, to shine for Jesus. How many of you, when you were little, learned the song, This Little Light of Mine? <laughs> I did. I'm going to let it shine. What do you think that sweet, wonderful, truthful little song is talking about? We are shining into the darkness. John writes in John 1 about the light has come into the world. The light of life. John writes about light and love and, and, and light many times in all of his writings. But, but Jesus isn't just the light, so we, we are thankful for the light. We put lights on the trees in you know, the weeks to come to, to be, and all over the house to be thankful for light. Jesus, you are the light. Guess what? If Christ is in you, you are the light. In the same way that he was. And it's not how good you are. It's just that you are walking in his pattern. That you've accepted his love, his forgiveness. And here I am, Lord, such as I am. And all of you who believe in him are probably shining a whole lot more brighter than you even realize. You can touch hearts. You can touch lives just by being Jesus to them. It, it, it's bringing light into darkness. The world's really dark right now, isn't it? It's painfully dark. And people need to know that there is light at all. And, and that the, the smallest bit of light, maybe you might think, oh, what can I do? How much of a difference can I make? If a room is completely black and you just light one little match, one little candle, you can see around the whole room. And that's the way we are. Our light needs to shine from him. So this verse today from Romans 12, 1 and 2, let's live it. And, and, it, and it begins with, with, in view of God's mercy. In the previous chapters of Romans, from leading up to chapter 12, he's, Paul is describing the wonderful, glorious mercy of God, his love for, for, for you, for, for all, all people, his forgiveness and the power of that, his mercy. So in view of that mercy... Give up yourselves. I mean, how great is God's mercy? Be a living sacrifice. And that's the best way to worship. I'm glad you're here today. We're worshiping the Lord together. Let's continue to do that, to gather together. But your greatest act of worship isn't what you do on Sunday. Your greatest act of worship is what you do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday as you shine before the world the love of God. I don't mean like, okay, today I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to be out there and they're going to see me. No, just be who you are. Be who Jesus taught you to be. And, and, that, and that light speaks for itself. That light shows a difference. 
Don't conform to this world, the broken pattern. It's easy to do that. Anybody can keep hanging out in the branch or, you know, kind of go halfway and just stay tucked in the cocoon and hide. But be transformed. I mean, why crawl if you can fly? And there's two things about being transformed. There's the process, it says in these, verse, in this, these two verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2, by the renewal of your mind. You've got to think differently. Think differently about life. Think differently about God. Think differently about relationships. I mean, when the, the Sermon on the Mount is, is a wonderful place to begin if you want to understand the mind of God. Because there's so many times, in, and that's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There's so many times in that, in that, that sermon that Jesus taught on a mountainside where it's a reversal of thinking where Jesus would say, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. So that's what he's talking about. It's the same thing. We have to think differently. We have to renew our mind. Someone at your job, your school, wherever you are, does something really cruel directed at you. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, okay? You're going to be a jerk to me. I'm going to say something to you or I'm going to do something equal to that or worse because you deserve it and I have a right to do that. But I say, Jesus, love those who persecute you. Pray for those who bring harm to you. Reversal of thinking. Renew the mind. That's what transforms us. Continuing to think like Jesus and then act upon that thought. So there's the process of transformation, mind renewal, and then there's the promise at the end. It says that you will understand the will of God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How many times do we get puzzled? God, what do you want? God, what's your will in this circumstance? Or God, how can I do this better? Or, you know, I, I'm so puzzled. And as a pastor, I get that question quite a lot about like a very specific thing. And, and, and they're very... Um, they, they, they mean well by it. it. It's a very genuine question, but um, the will of God isn't really as mysterious as we think. When you're talking about what to do next or, or what God's going to do, and we don't always know what, what's going to happen, but what I'm saying is that as we transform, allow the, that light to come in, and, and our, the change to come out, you, the will's going to become more and more obvious. Oh, yeah, Lord, that's what you want. Yeah, that's the right way to go. Because sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, when we have that tough decision and we think, this is, you know, is that really your will, God? We're maybe afraid to do something. So fear is, is what's in the way. And, and love starts to drive away the fear, and then we can go forward. Or maybe we've been hurt before, and we don't want to go there because of that. And, and as we trust God deeper and deeper, reversal of thinking, renewal of the mind, then the way is more clear. Like we talked about last week from, um, two weeks ago, excuse me, from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that, that, that path before us, that, that God gives us enough light to see the next step. So this is my encouraging words for you today, is that we would allow... God, it's time to allow just means get out of the way. God wants to do great work in you, but God is, is patient with you.
The Lord isn't going to force his way into your life and, you know, move the furniture around for you. <laughs> but he will say, you know what, do you really need that, Paul? How about we try this? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, whatever you've said to the, to the hearts and minds of people here today and those watching at home, plant one seed in their mind of a change that is part of their transformation, of, of the thing that, that, that you've been working on in their life, of the, of the renewal of the thinking they need to have. And I pray for each person here today and all those listening that they would know what that is and then trust you to show them that next step to be transformed and shine as brightly as Jesus did on that mountain into a world that is so dark. In his name we pray, amen.